Look around, what do you see? Cars, lots of them. And guess what? They're probably on Auto Trader. Whether you're into timeless classics or the latest trends, did somebody say solar-powered, eco-friendly, vegan, leather-wrapped, aromatherapy-scented, disco ball-equipped, self-driving car? If you see it on the road, you can likely find it on Auto Trader. Big cars, small cars, blue cars, new cars, used cars, electric cars, and one day, maybe even flying cars. With millions of options to choose from, buying a car becomes a whole lot easier. See it. Find it. Auto Trader. It's been almost 3,000 years, and Greek mythology has proved that it is not going anywhere. But it can be difficult to find entertaining and engaging retellings of these myths that aren't fictionalized. Lucky for you, I'm here. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is the Greek mythology and ancient history podcast of your dreams. I dive into the convoluted and confusing ancient sources so you don't have to. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths Baby on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh, and there's Chuck, and we're doing it today like we're brothers, because this is Stuff You Should Know. <laughs> okay, but we don't, we don't make out. That's, that was my point. I was tell, letting everyone know that we don't make out. Yeah, I, I was hoping you were not going to ask me where this idea came from, because I honestly can't remember. Oh, I thought, I thought you were going to say you'd prefer not to say. No, I remember Livia helped us with this one, and she mm-hmm. did a great job. Yeah, this is uh, outstanding. But I remember sending the email, mm-hmm. but I don't remember what happened just before I sent that email. I, well, all I remember is that that email was frantic and in all caps with a lot of misspellings. <laughs> I had gone to lunch with my super hot cousin. I don't <laughs> right. think that had anything to do with it. Cousin though. Rhonda? <laughs> oh, you know Rhonda. Everybody knows Rhonda. Uh, there is no cousin Rhonda, just so everyone knows. That was a Josh joke. Mm-hmm. I, I don't have many cousins. Do you have a lot of cousins? I don't know. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was just kind of thinking about this, and I just don't have many. My dad had one brother, and he had three sons, one of whom passed away a few years ago. The other two I'm not mm-hmm. close to mm-hmm. or not even touch with, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mom's sister never had kids. Her brother, uh, never had biological kids, but I'm actually closest to my cousin, David, who you met in, uh, our show in Kansas. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Uh, David was adopted and I'm like tighter with him than anyone. Sure. And then my mom's other brother has two daughters and a son who seemed great. I just, you know, we were sort of in touch when I was on Facebook, but we kind of fell out of touch over the years, but you know, they're good people. Is that Rhonda's family? That's that's Rhonda. <laughs> but I'm not one of these families that has like, you know, 20-something cousins. Yeah, I seem to remember as a child in Ohio having like a bunch of cousins, but it's not clear as an adult like if they were like, you know, close Real friends cousins. of my mom's kids yeah. or that kind of thing. I know I have one cousin who's like in his 70s. It's just all over the place. It's a big mess basically. Gotcha. I'm not going to marry any of them. I'm already married and you and I here. are verified not cousins. Correct. But as we'll see... It's not that big of a deal, at least with cousins, <laughs> depending on yeah, where you are. Absolutely. Uh, and I, again, I don't remember what inspired this, but I looked into it a little bit before sending it off to Libya and found that, generally speaking, around the world through history and now marrying cousins in most of the world is 
fine. Yeah, they're cool with it. They like it. And there's yeah. good reasons, too. But if we're talking about, so that is, um, and I actually saw a distinction here. So that is a what would be called a cosanguineous <clears throat> marriage. Second cousin or closer, right? Yes, exactly. Right. And that uh, sanguine or, um, is like blood, right? So you're saying like it's a, a related blood or blood relative marriage is essentially what that is. Right. Um, Again, it, it depends on just how close you're going. There, people can be cool with it, but there is a definite stopping point almost around the world in every culture, and not just the ones around today, but in throughout history. There's basically been a general taboo on you having sexual relations with your nuclear family. That's siblings, parents. Um, uh, sons, daughters, all that stuff. That when you're when you're that close, you just should not be touching Im- improperly. Right, <laughs> as Hodgman would say, hugging and kissing. Sure, that's his. Uh, he that's his stand-in for intercourse. I know it makes me more uncomfortable than if he just said <laughs> sex. That's the thing he says. That is not his real life. You know, application. <laughs> that's just as far <laughs> as he'll go. No one's ever gotten past first base with Hodgman. Oh, it's so sad. Um, So uh, Livia did a pretty smart thing, I think, with this research and started out with animals because you would, you know, if you want to look at uh, our our primate friends and other mammals, it's kind of a fun place to start. Mm -hmm. And generally speaking, uh, animals also avoid interbreeding. And it depends on which species as to how – uh, kind of hard line they are about it and how much they try to avoid it. <laughs> right. And how much they try to avoid it seems to be entirely based on, because, you know, they're not one to say like, ooh, that's gross, that's creepy. Mm-hmm. Uh, some animals might, but most don't. Um, but it's entirely based on what's called inbreeding depression. Basically, like, will it be bad for our species if we do this? Yes. So, um, you know, anthropologists said, well, you know, we're studying animals, and animals show um, sexual aversion to siblings or parents. So if animals do it and humans are animals, like, does that just mean that all of these cultural taboos around the world and throughout history are basically the human version of innate sexual aversion aversion tendencies that any animal would have that it's just the kind of the natural evolution of a this biological imperative to not reproduce with our parents or siblings that's right but what have they found well i mean that's one very widely um believed theory that that's what it is um uh, other people have said well i think instead that what it is is humans are smart enough to see that that there is a problem with you know um, inbreeding, as we'll as we'll see later on, um, that the the offspring can have you know problems that other offspring of non cosanguineous yeah marriages w- wouldn't have. So mm-hmm. we just observed this over time and made up these laws around it to make it taboo for that reason. That's another theory, right? Which uh, I mean, one of the people that put this forth is a gentleman named William Durham, and it seems like he's saying like. Otherwise, we would be doing this, right? I, I, I <laughs> guess, I guess so. Maybe, yeah. Okay. Oh, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but it just seems like the theory is basically that, like, no, when it comes to humans, there is no natural aversion, but we just uh, sort of invented this thing. 
For good reasons. But yeah, but based on observations of, you know, yeah. we tried it at first and it didn't really work out. So now we're seeing like we need to make some sort of universal law that can extend through the ages, you know, because a taboo is a lot more than just a law. It's like, it's it's just, it's a law plus, you know what I'm saying? There's right. like a, there's a real like, there's a, there's this guy named Jonathan Haidt. He, I, he used to be with U, University of Virginia. I don't know if he is still or not, but he was studying moral intuition. And one of the ways that he studied that is he would present um, study participants with this little scenario where I think it was Julie and Jack maybe, um, okay. our brother and sister, they're traveling mm-hmm. together in the mm-hmm. south of France. They're in a cabin one day and they this decide— This is starting to feel like a penthouse letter. <laughs> oh, oh, buckle up, buddy. Um <laughs> They decide just to just to have a new experience that neither one has ever had and probably never will have again to have sex. Okay. Even, even though they're blood brother and sister. Okay. Okay. So he puts a spin on this. He says, uh, "Julie was on the pill. Jack wore a condom. They both decided that they wanted to see how interesting this would be and that it wasn't going to harm anybody. There was no chance of producing offspring. And they kept this as a secret to themselves that actually brought them closer together as brother and sister to have this shared secret. They never did again. Is that okay? And to a person, people respond with, no, that's not okay. And Jonathan Haidt would say, or Haidt would say, why not? And people couldn't couldn't put their finger on it. Right. They just knew it was wrong. Just because. Yeah. yeah. And there's been a lot of questions about that. It's like, you know, what study group are you talking about? What does that really show? But it's a really kind of an interesting demonstration that, totally. yeah, we have this really distinct feeling uh, basically across the board, at least, you know, in, in most cultures, in most societies, that that is wrong. There's something very wrong with it, even if we can't overtly say what's wrong with it. Even if there are wine coolers involved. <laughs> yeah. That's funny you say that because I just saw a Seinfeld episode where George tries to come on to his cousin oh, really? to upset his parents. And his cousin is drinking wine coolers in the back what? of the van right before they're about to do wow. it. Wow. Yeah. That's really funny. Yeah. Totally weird. Yeah. And it very much dates Seinfeld and myself, I guess. <laughs> For sure. Uh Although all those, like, new fangled uh, alcoholic beverages, those are all just sort of the new wine cooler, aren't they? Exactly, yeah. All right. So uh, we should talk about the Westermark effect. This is pretty interesting. Um, It is – there was a late 19th century sociologist from Finland named Edvard uh, Westermark. I guess I should have said the Westermark effect. And there was a hypothesis that makes a lot of sense that basically said two kids that are raised together – uh, won't be sexually attracted to each other as they, you know, when they get older. And then that was expanded to, that also includes like parents in the house and studies have backed this up. And then later it it was even expanded further to be like, you don't have to even be related. If you were raised together, then you're not going to be attracted to each other later. Right. And so that really supports the idea that our cultural taboos against uh Incest is a um, is is it's from a biological imperative, right? That there's some part of growing up and reaching adolescence where some mechanism is triggered along the way, or it's like I don't, I'm not attracted to you. You're my sibling, kind of thing. And there's plenty of studies that back this up. Actually, um, there's, I think, more often than not, 
the studies tend to back it up, although there have been studies that kind of showed the opposite, but there's so few and far between that it seems like the Westermark effect is possibly a real thing. And it extends beyond blood relatives so that um, kids who are raised together that might not even be blood siblings but are raised in the same house or say like on a kibitz, they found that it's, it's also a parent as well. They will have that same Westermark effect too. Right, but they also found that it only because I was going to make a joke about like Willis and Kimberly, mm-hmm. but it wouldn't apply because uh, it seems to only uh, be a thing if they were cohabitating before they were six years old, uh, which would not be the case with Willis and Kimberly. No, and explains so everything. They could <laughs> they could fall in love. Uh, there is also. Um, this thing called well, I don't even think it has a name actually, uh, but just sort of like the the backward version of the uh, Westermark effect, which is, and I've heard, I feel like I've heard real life stories about this, mm-hmm. unless it's just been in TV shows and movies, is when uh, kind of like separated at birth situations where they meet each other later and have a very strong physical attraction to one another. Yeah, so they're actually, uh, but then they find out they're cousins and or. Or maybe even siblings or mm-hmm. first cousins, and then it's like, oh, in the movie version. But then they eventually find out uh, that, of course, it was just a big mistake, and they are really in love, and it's okay. Hooray, they can hug and kiss, finally. Right, which, well, I was about to say the Royal Tannenbaums, but they were they were actually raised together. Yeah, so that were, kind of flies in the face of Vestermark. I think they were actually, oh, no. Uh, uh, she was adopted. Yeah, that's right. So there actually is a term for this. It's called genetic sexual attraction. And it's not just in movies, dude. There's this really interesting government handout. Uh, You can go search the Cumbria, C-U-M-B-R-I-A, City Council Genetic Sexual Attraction. It'll bring up a PDF that Mm -hmm. they give to people who have been adopted who are going to reunite with family members that says, hey, we really want to tell you about this really strange experience that you might have where you find you are powerfully attracted to your biological mom who you're just meeting or your biological sister or brother uh-huh. yeah. and that yes it's very weird and it's going to make you feel weird but don't follow it through to its you know seemingly logical conclusion of having sex with them because you're going to ruin your lives you're going right. to put a strain on this new relationship and it's not really you're not really sexually attracted we think we think that it's just such a powerful um uh, like connection that you're sensing, yeah. that as an adult, you accidentally mistranslated into a sexual attraction because that's the only thing it could possibly explain. It just does not compute. Right. But it's really, really interesting. And it, it does seem to be a real thing that you have to like take in, into account when you reunite with a biological family member. Where is Cumbria and why Cumbria? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to leave that. Um, it is in the UK. Oh, okay. I'm pretty sure. Does it matter? They've got a great handout. No, I just wondered if it was uh, an especially problem, uh, like a problem there, especially. Or doesn't it seem like? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> oh, I see. Yeah, definitely. Maybe it is just a Cumbria problem. I don't know. I got the impression that it was, you know, genetic or biological. Well, no, I mean that it happened there a lot. So they're like, I guess we need a pamphlet now. <laughs> right. It's a it's a well done pamphlet too. Or maybe they have a. Well, never mind. Um. I'm just going to drop that one. I think that's best. In fact, maybe we should just take a break. I think that's best as well. And I'm going to think about what I almost did.
something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery. But that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily. As I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which is morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
right. So I guess if we want to, that was a pretty good setup, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think if we want to go back in time, it gets pretty interesting because depending on where you are in the history of humans and where you are on planet Earth, it's sort of gone from people didn't really do it. Some people did. Some people frowned upon it mm-hmm. or generally nobody really frowned upon it for a little while. I guess you could even almost classify it as a fad in some cases. <laughs> sure. Uh, but if you look at religion, certainly uh, throughout time, there are all kinds of um, interfamily sexual unions from uh, Zeus and Hera, who were siblings, uh, all over Muslim and Jewish and Christian traditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's an explanation due when Adam and Eve have Cain and Abel and then sort of look around at each other <laughs> and go, well, wait a minute, we're supposed to populate the earth. Right. So uh, various religions have explained that away as there were also twin daughters born, and uh, that's how the earth was originally populated. And maybe Cain even slew Abel uh, because I guess he got he got the the hot one. Right. I want myth mythy. Yeah, I, it sounds like a Monty Python sketch or something it, like. It really does. There's this classic Princess Beauty, and then like the. In fact, I think that was a Monty Python sketch. Probably. I don't know the one, but I'm guessing. Yeah. So um, the thing is, is they they have found, most historians tend to agree, that um, even though like deities or, you know, um, ancient figures in, in religious texts were involved in incest, that among common everyday people, they were not. It was not a widespread phenomenon. It was almost re- relegated to the elite. Um and I, by almost, I mean it absolutely was. It's not like if you were an elite family, you were definitely engaged in incest no matter what culture or what historical right. period you were in. But you were far more likely in in history um, to, if you were an elite, to have an incestuous relationship than if you were just an everyday schmo cutting stones to build a pyramid. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, it's it's the same as what we'll, you know, we'll talk about royals later on. It was a way to keep it all in the family and keep that power consolidated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we'll see evidence of uh, economic reasons for doing that as well as just sort of being the elite ruling class. Uh, and, in fact, in some cases with the elite ruling class, they touted it as, like, Sort of like we're this special mm-hmm. that we are almost required to do this. I mean, not just above the law, above the taboos. Yeah. Like that is, yes, they are definitely creating an elite status for themselves. And and it does, like it's definitely been shown scientifically documented now that all, all of these kind of um, folklore and histories and religious texts are being proven. Like uh, Tutankhamun's parents have been shown to have been brother and sister. Um, based on histories, we're pretty sure Cleopatra married both of her brothers at different times and that her parents were probably bl- brother and sister. So it definitely did happen. Um, just to what extent is is unclear. That's right. Uh, and I think there was one exception as far as the commoners go, and that was during the Roman Egyptian period, mm-hmm. first to third century CE, where uh, I guess that might have been a fad thing because the census shows that there were a lot of common people that were in, you know, sibling marriages, basically. Yeah, but we don't know what everybody thought of that. But if it was that widespread, I guess people weren't that down on it, you know? 
Right. And then uh, in Iran or Persia at the time, Zoroastrian Persia, from the 5th century BCE to the 11th century CE, they had something called uh, Exwadota, um, which basically said this is a really spiritual, powerful ritual you can you can engage in on a Friday night with your brother or sister. Right. <laughs> and that they, they said that you get a lot of power spiritually from this act, and they think possibly it's because you you were having to overcome, you know, your aversion to incest, and supposedly you gained some power from that. That's right. And it wasn't necessarily like a marriage, right? No, it was like ritual sex. Sure. Like uh, Aleister Crowley style. Exactly. In the <laughs> desert. Uh, so that's generally like what we've kind of been talking about is sibling stuff uh, and how that's gone through history. When it comes, like we said at the beginning, when it comes to cousins, that's really a different story even today in many parts of the world. Uh, cousins, I mean, not from the beginning of time because it is interesting that they did studies of ancient people mm -hmm. and found DNA evidence. And this is just last year in 2021. Uh, from almost 1,800 ancient humans going back about 45,000 years, or at least as far back as that, mm -hmm. only 3%, it looked like, were even cousin marriage. So it's something that got more popular after ancient humans, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, they think it started around the time that history did, which is usually where we place, you know, a thousand or two years after agriculture. And they think that it was a result of agriculture, of settling down, um, that you would have a much greater aversion to marrying your cousin in hunter-gatherer societies because there would be much less genetic diversity. But right. when you take a bunch of different people and pull them into the same place, yeah, they might be related by marriage or, you know, their cousins a couple times removed, but because of the increased genetic diversity, there would be far less chance of there being some sort of um, uh, genetic mishap from the, the mating of those cousins. Yeah, and I guess one thing we didn't point out is that previous to this, when people were engaging in like the elites and sibling marriage and things like that, they generally avoided uh, genetic mishaps because, as you'll see, it's still pretty rare. We'll get to that later, but uh, they did things to discourage that kind of stuff. Uh, like some of the marriages were celibate and stuff like that. And it was really all about consolidation of power and not like, all right, now we'll have 12 kids. Right, exactly. With uh, eight heads. <laughs> uh, this one stat kind of alarmed me, though. And this is, of course, just one person's opinion. But uh, there's an anthropologist at Rutgers named Robin Fox who estimated that 80% of all marriages in history mm – -hmm may have been second cousin or closer, which that seems really high. Yes, but they make a really good case. And they say that until we had <clears throat> segues and trains and stuff like that, you, when you went courting, you probably didn't court much more than about five miles away from home sure. because you had to walk there and back usually in a day. Um, so within that five-mile radius, you were much more likely to encounter cousins and so as a result, the cousin marriage probably was, like, uh, taking place at a really high rate. I don't know where they came up with 80%. But, um, Sounds like a lot. It, it is a, it's a pretty interesting hypothesis, at least. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and we're going to jump around sort of all over the world, too, to see what has happened in other cultures. And China is one that's pretty noteworthy uh, in that for a lot of China's, in fact, most of their history um, – if you were first cousins and you wanted to get married, it was generally okay unless they were, uh, they were the kids of two male siblings 
and they just reckoned because you had the same family name, it was a little too weird? Uh, they think they thought that, um, like, m- brothers with the same family name were kind of considered more relatives than, say, a brother and a sister with two different last names because the sister's been married off. Which is just not true. No, it's not. But, I mean, it's a cultural thing, you know? Yeah. But this also came about in the early 80s with uh, the PRC marriage law banning first cousin marriage. And uh, it was about birth defects, and it was it was the same time as sort of their, uh, I don't know what, I mean, do we call it eugenics? They said that they wanted to improve, quote, the quality of the population. So, yeah, I'd say mm. that's eugenics. Okay. Uh, but it was in lockstep with the one-child policy, and that's basically when China started getting, like, super in everyone's business. Yeah. As far as child-rearing goes. But what's interesting is that's about 100 years after America started passing laws on that kind of thing, too. Yeah, that's true. So there's another, um, there's a really cool hypothesis by a guy named Joseph Heinrich, who's an evolutionary biologist. And he traces um, a really big change back to 506 CE, when the Catholic Church, um, the people leading the church basically said, hey, you cannot marry anyone closer than your third cousin from now on, which is interesting because we we consider a co-sanguinous relationship. Second cousins are closer, right? <laughs> so maybe that's where that comes from. But they, they are not entirely certain where why they said that, but they said that, and it was a big-time rule. And the Catholics started running the show around that time all over Europe. So this applied to a lot of people. And Heinrich's hypothesis is that that, cha- that changed things so much that it led to the modern world, basically. Right, with the idea that, um, I-, I guess, the family bonds took a hit. Mm-hmm. People were encouraged to be a little more individualistic. Uh, I don't know why I put a big pause in the middle of that. <laughs> mm-hmm. And basically trust other people such that societies were able to form because it wasn't like, well, I only trust my family. You know, they started it, it really came down to human trust mm-hmm. as far as branching out mm-hmm. and and larger groups of non-related people kind of getting along and trusting each other. Yeah, because if you only trust and care for and take care of your kin, you know, a kin network can only be so large. So your society can only be so large. But if you remove that kind of kin network stuff, like by saying you need to marry outside of your kin network, then you can support a larger and larger society too. And then they think also that led to things like free market competition, that we might not have had that or such right. an emphasis on that kind of thing. Or like you said, individualism, that it basically whatever we think of as the West today traces its roots back to that, and it all had to do with not being able to marry members of your kin group. Which is the opposite of the Josh Clark motto, which is never trust family. Exactly. <laughs> uh, another little sidebar here that I thought was interesting was the, um, some people think that the tradition at a wedding of saying, if anyone has any objections uh, to the marriage is sort of a evolution of the question, does anybody know if these two are related? Yeah, I thought that was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So Heinrich wrote a book, if, if you're like, I need to know more about this, it's called How the West Became Weird. Weird as in Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. Right. Not yeah. Austin weird. No, but I think he also says like kind of Austin weird too, you know? Oh, okay. <laughs> so we talked about, um, you know, when people think of like, uh, like incest and royalties or even, in, you know, in, intra-family marriage, um, 
like you, you tend to think of things like the Habsburg jaw. And I know we've talked about that before, but I don't remember. Did we do like a short stuff on it or something? No, I tried to think of it. I think I'm pretty sure it was a video, one of our videos that we did, because I remember flashing images of these uh, humongous underbites. Chuck, I swear to you, we've talked about it in the last year. Really? Yes, I swear. And either that or my sense of time has been so messed up in the last couple of years that <laughs> well, I'm just gonna, I'm just done, basically. Right. So the, the Habsburgs uh, were royals who inbred so much that they had, like you said, what was known as the Habsburg jaw. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I said, which was a big time underbite, and like I have a bit of a even bite, not quite an underbite. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm, I've always been a little self-conscious about it, but when I saw the Habsburg jaws, I was not. <laughs> like I got nothing to worry about. Yeah, Charles II of Spain was described as quote swallowing all he eats whole, for his nether jaw stands out so much that his two rows of teeth cannot meet. Yeah, that's the that's Habsburg jaw for you. I'm pretty sure you can chew your food, right? No, no, no. I'm fine. I'm, I'm. A little more Bruce Springsteen, not quite Habsburg. So um, the 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 much bigger problem that the Habsburg faced is that their children had an infant mortality rate of about 18 percent, yeah, which was high even at the time. But it was specific for that family, and what they were doing, I think you touched on it earlier, was they were consolidating power. They were making sure that some other family from some other country didn't worm its way into the Habsburgs and take over Germany or Saxony or uh, Austria, wherever the Habsburgs were ruling. And they they just kept it in the family. And so there yeah. were some problems genetically. But they were far from the only family to, to try this. And some of the greatest economic dynasties that the world has ever seen did the same thing for the same reasons, too. Yeah, the DuPonts, uh, Pierre Samuel DuPont, uh, said in 1810, quote, the marriages that I should prefer for our colony would be between the cousins, and that way we should be sure of honesty of soul and purity of blood, mm. uh, end quote. And that was, you know, it's not only about uh, power, but I think keeping the money in the family, yes, being wary of strangers coming in because they're rich, uh, that kind of thing. So I, I think it was, at least how I read it, was a little less like a, a eugenics, pure bloodline thing, and a little more like, we got to keep our own. Yes, and it was the same thing for the Rothschild, the Jewish banking family. Um, it, it basically the exact same thing. And so the DuPonts, which were founded, I believe, in France, DuPont's first name was Pierre Samuel back in 1810. The Rothschild, I know, were, I believe, in France. I know, I believe, they were from France. <laughs> And the Habsburgs basically ruled Europe for, you know, quite a while, centuries, I believe. And so in Europe, the idea of intra-family marriages and inbreeding between close relations was kind of looked at as like, if you were well-to-do, you kind of did that thing. So there wasn't nearly as much an aversion to it as there was in the United States, which is why the United States was one of the first countries to really start passing laws against marrying um, close relations, actually. Yeah, 1875 is when things started to kind of, I think people just started to not do it as much culturally in the U.S. And then as far as laws on the books, uh, it, it even started a little bit before that. And what was the very first state, Josh? Kansas. 
Yeah, the Jayhawks. Leading the way in incest laws. (laughs) Don't do it. In 1858 and uh, by the mid-1920s, most of the states had laws on the books. Uh, Olivia points out that if you were a Western state, you were a little more likely to be ahead of the curve because they were newer states and they were just writing their laws for the first time. So they kind of, you know, had to go through everything. Right. And this was a time when they, everyone in the country just started looking at the laws around marriages basically in a health and safety manner and not so much like we just want to be in your business thing. Right. And it's strange to think of today and especially as an American, but apparently America has long had an outlier preoccupation with um, like close relatives marrying. Like mm-hmm. elsewhere in the world, as we'll see, it's not a thing. But even in parts of Europe, it's a, it's a much more modern aversion than it has been in America. Like I guess around the world we're known as like we got a real problem with cousin marrying, like almost like me thinks they doth protest too much. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, <laughs> 25 states in the U.S. today have banned first cousin marriage. Only half. Uh, seven more have some restrictions. And I think Arizona's is I love it. fairly adorable because <laughs> they allow it if you're both at least 65 years old or older mm-hmm. uh, or if you can't reproduce. So I guess they're like, you know. I guess you really couldn't find anyone else. <laughs> or you really, really loved each other. Just don't well, make no. any babies. <laughs> that's, the, that's, that's the Arizona sure. law. Yeah, absolutely. So, and again, we're talking co-sanguinous marriages. In most laws, that means second cousins are closer. Um, and again, around the world, this is not considered a problem. Uh, that cousin marriages, uh, apparently as much as 10% of the global population uh, practice uh, marriages of second cousins are closer. And then in some Middle Eastern provinces, it's as high as 80%. Yeah, and it's interesting when you look at this, uh, I guess it was a study, It was there were interviews in uh, Pakistan in 1995 uh, around this. And the reasons that these women gave were, they make a lot of sense. They, they said that uh, a few different things, that they were uh, more compatible not compatible, compatible <laughs> sure. uh, with family than strangers, which makes sense. Yeah. Uh, that their in-laws were kinder to the brides if they were from the same family. Mm-hmm. And that uh, within, if you had a, I guess, a co-sanguinous marriage, you were less focused on physical appearance and looks. Yeah, that's that was the, the, um, the Pakistani surveys respondents like take on the whole thing that they just didn't consider it like that. And then the other thing is they were suspicious of uh, people who wanted to marry outside their family because in a society like that where there was a lot of intramarriage or intrafamily marriages, um, it was a real red flag when somebody outside of your family was like, hey, you want to marry me? Because it would say that their family found them unfit to be married. So they've got real problems, right? So, (laughs) so yeah, it would, it would, you would just not want to marry something like that in that, in that sense. Shall we take a break? Yeah, let's. All right. We'll talk about some more famous examples and then get to the bottom of the health risks right after this. (laughs) 
something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery. But that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily, as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
So, Chuck, before we get started again, I want to say something because I, I came across um, the, a kind of a, a working definition of incest is way different than the, just kind of the general um, way that we're using it. And I've tried to pepper this with, you know, intramarriage or co-sanguinous marriage, but incest specifically, which most people just think of as like sexual relations between very close family members, is, is supposedly defined as um, – uh, like it's a dominant version of that. It's it's an abusive version of that where somebody in a position of power, like an older brother or an older right. sister or a father or mother, uh-huh. um, m- basically molests like one of their family members. It's a very specific kind of sexual relations among family members and probably the darkest of all the kinds. So that's the true definition? That's what I saw. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I always thought that it could also mean consensual. Yeah, I think that's what most people think. That's why I wanted to share that, because that's what yeah. I thought, too, until, you know, yesterday when I was running across it. All right. Thanks for clearing that up. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, so let's talk about the the elephant in the room, which is the health risks. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's sort of the the unspoken thing people always think about in the back of their head when they hear of like, oh, I have family members that married each other and they're third cousins. And the very first thing that probably pops into someone's head is, is like, is this going to be problematic when they go to have kids? And as we will see, that doesn't necessarily mean that it will. Isn't that astounding? Right? Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. Like, I, my entire view of this thing has been completely upended in the last two days because it depends on – well, we'll get into it in a second. But when most people think of – like close relations, marrying, you just think of children born with abnormalities, birth defects, um, possibly uh, genetic disorders, and all that can happen. But the reason it happens isn't because brother and sister, you know, had sex and automatically God punished them, you know? Right. That's, <laughs> yeah. not, that's not how it works. What it is is the brother and the sister are much more likely to be carriers of a certain recessive gene— and so when you put those to get together and produce a, an offspring, that offspring is almost certainly going to have that um, genetic disorder uh, or abnormality or whatever. And so that, that, that's just likelier to happen. But even among um, intramarriages or intrafamily marriages, um, that's a really rare outcome, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, these genetic disorders that we're talking about, which are everything from sickle cell anemia to... Cerebral palsy, uh, I guess cystic fibrosis, some of these things, they're rare to begin with. Mm-hmm. So even if you're doubling up your chances, it's its not like it makes it likely. It's still going to be rare. Right. And it's the case where, like, this is the thing that reveals that recessive gene, mm-hmm. you know, because the, the brother and the sister don't have this disease. That's why it's recessive. Right. So they don't know this going in. And then all of a sudden they have a kid that has this birth defect and they – you know, they maybe do genetic testing and it's unraveled. Right. So the thing is, that can happen to two non-related people, too. Sure. Because there's so many recessive genes out there in the general population. But because there's so many and there's so many people that the chances of two unrelated people is much less. Like you said, it might be double for people who are related, but still in absolute terms, it's not that that much of a risk. Right. Uh, Numbers-wise. But what you're saying is when you get too, too non—like, if you're not marrying a family member, you're actually engaging in more of a genetic crapshoot 
than you are as a fa- marrying a family member because you could know probably what's likelier to happen. If, right. if, unless you've done, like you said, genetic counseling, you have no idea how your genes are going to match with somebody else's. The, again, we have so many genes. There's so many different possible mutations, and there's so many people in the in the reproductive pool that the chances are just very low that it's going to produce some sort of uh, genetic disorder or abnormality or something like that. Yeah, and I think historically it's been a lot more common in uh, very small rural communities uh, where the gene pool period is just a lot smaller. Right. Uh, and, it, you know, it's just math, basically. You're just going to be more at risk. Okay, so I read this um, this study. Well, I read the abstract. I have to fess up. I didn't read the whole study. But it was <laughs> from uh, the University of Natural Sciences Lahore in Pakistan. And they basically said, which uh, whether cosanguinous or non-cosanguinous marriage, which one is preferable depends on which level you're looking on, on the individual level or on the population level. And uh-huh. that on a population level, and this is stone-cold eugenic speak, right? So I just want to preface it with that. But on a population level, you're actually better off having your population marry relatives because um, there will be a, a, a huge upsurge initially in children who are born with, um, you know, genetic disorders, who um, might not survive infancy, and who won't go on to reproduce. The ones who do survive and go Uh, on to reproduce will actually be potentially genetically fitter because their good alleles, their good genes, mixed with their sister's good genes, and they're producing offsprings with, like, super genes, basically. So on a population level, it's great. On an individual level... It's not so great. Interesting. And so they concluded overall on uh, for populations until we learn to treat genetic disorders like through gene therapy or something like that, we should really just keep outlawing co-sanguinous marriages. Right. Wow. When was that? It was a recent paper. I'm not exactly sure, but it was in yeah. the last 10 years for sure. Uh, well, should we finish up with just some uh, bulleted points and factoids? <laughs> That's how we do. <laughs> Well, I guess we could talk about some famous people uh, who very famously married very close relatives. Mm-hmm. Edgar Edgar Allan Poe did so. Uh, in 1835, he married, I believe, a first cousin named Virginia Eliza Clem. Mm-hmm. And uh, apparently the outrage there was the fact that she was 13 right. and he was 27. So even in 1835, that was a pretty uh, – a pretty big age gap, and I guess people were creeped out. And I guess Poe's walking around super creepy anyway. Sure. He was like, what can <laughs> I do sure to creep help. people out further? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, Jesse James married his first cousin in 1874, which, again, it's right on the precipice of when when America started to be like, we're not cool with cousin marrying anymore. Oh, yeah. That's right there, isn't it? H.G. Wells, 1891. Yeah. And then Einstein. I didn't know he married his cousin. Did you? I did not know that. Married his cousin Elsa uh, in 1919, and I think both of them, it was their second time around, mm-hmm. marriage-wise. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I don't think it went went so well. I think he wasn't a great husband, apparently. Yeah, so Olivia found a, all that's an interesting article that's really depressing and disturbing because it, I had no idea, but Einstein seems to have been a really terrible husband, like cruel even, you could say. Yeah. Yeah. So if you really want to just keep liking Einstein and only think of him like that poster with his tongue sticking out, 
Right. Do not read that. All that is interesting article on it. Or, or a lovable shaggy Tim Robbins. <laughs> yeah. What was that from? Oh, uh, he was in the movie. Meg Ryan played his daughter. No, that was Walter Matthau that played Einstein. Oh. <laughs> she, got together with, she got together with Tim Robbins. That's right. Tim Robbins got another good 20 years before he starts playing Einstein. Yeah, or Meg Ryan's dad. I'm, I was way confused. <laughs> Mathal, he was a great Einstein. Oh, man, he was great. The did, most lovable Did Einstein. you ever see the couch trip with uh, Dan Aykroyd? Him? Sure. I'm a big Walter Mathal fan. That was a wonderful movie, and I think that might be one of his better performances, too. Yeah, he was amazing. Uh, what what can we go over here? Some other sort of taboos around the world? These are interesting, I think. Yeah, I, I agree. So um, different cultures have kind of come up with, like, taboo plus, like really complex stuff to basically say, mm -hmm. okay, you can marry this person, you can't marry the, that person. It, it goes beyond just you can't marry your second cousin or closer. And um, one, of the, one of the ways that the, the Muslim religion has done this is to come up with something called uh, a milk kinship, where if you uh, breastfeed a child who's unrelated to you at least three mm -hmm. to five times, then you and that child are considered mahram, which means you are you cannot marry, right? Even though you're not a blood relative, you might not have any blood shared between you. Because you breastfed, you can't marry that that person. Right, which seems like, duh, uh, because you're <laughs> raising this you know, kid from a baby. But I don't think we mentioned at the beginning, there have been cultures through history where it was a common practice to uh, adopt and raise a baby and also marry them. Like, you marry the baby and then raise them up to adulthood. Baby bride. Baby bride. It's 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 very hard to wrap your head around. Or baby groom, I saw in, in uh, at least one culture. Yeah. Um, again, it's, it's hard to wrap your head around here in 2022, but that's something that happened. So this was a big deal in the Muslim culture because you don't have to wear uh, hijab if you are mahram. So... It's sort of a workaround when you raise this adopted baby. Uh, it all of a sudden, when they get old enough, you don't have to wear that hijab around them anymore. Right, right, because you're mahram, which yeah. is kind of fun to say. It is. Um, and then there's something called the leveret marriage. I, had, I think it has to do with Levi from the Bible, Old Testament stuff. But basically, it's a law that is found in a bunch of different disparate cultures that says if you are married to a man and, that, and your husband dies, your brother-in-law has to marry you. Mm-hmm. And it was. It seems to have been a way um, not to, you know, marry off an unmarriable brother, a brother-in-law, I should say, um, but instead to take care of women, from what I can tell. Yeah, I feel like I've seen this not as a requirement, but as just a plot line in like old West movies. Mm. Like the husband dies, and so the widow marries his, you know, the brother comes into town for the funeral, and then they fall in love or something. Is it Tim Robbins? I don't I think so. He had really shaggy hair. Uh, I know I've seen that before, but as far as the required, the Old Testament version, uh, there was a stipulation where if the brother-in-law said, no thanks, uh, then the widow, uh, I guess in offense, takes off his sandals and then spits in his face. Mm -hmm. And then his bloodline is forever known as the family of the unsandaled. <laughs> Which I guess you would not want to be known as that. I guess so. I also saw, so there's a... a um, culture called the Chukchi from Eastern Siberia, and uh -huh. they, they practice leveret marriage. 
um, where, you know, if, you're, if your husband dies, you marry his brother. And this is a way of taking care of women in a place that's, like, really unforgiving climate-wise. Um, and they actually have a backup to that. They have wife swapping where very close friends will create a pact and they will share their wives. And then all of the children born are all that group's, you know, responsibility. There's not like a delineation. And that supports women whose husbands don't have a brother. So if their husband dies, they're still taken care of by this other husband and his wife and their family. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's pretty smart. I always think of raising Arizona when I ever hear the two words wife swap. <laughs> yeah. It's impossible <laughs> not to, you know. Me and Dottie are swingers. You got anything else? I got nothing else. I don't either, which means this is the end of our marrying cousin episode. Since I <laughs> talked about marrying cousins one last time, that means it's time for listener mail. Uh, I'm going to call this adoption language, and this is something that uh, made me feel bad in a good way, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. It's something I never considered as a, as a dad who has an adopted kid, and I'm really glad that Frank uh, opened my eyes to this. Uh, hey, guys, my wife Katie and I were listening to the Roe v. Wade episode, and we have a minor tangential note. Uh, we noticed that you used the phrase gave up when referencing adoption a few times, mm-hmm. like gave up their baby for adoption, which is... Uh, you know, it's a very common thing people say. Like, sure. I say it all the time, too. Yeah. Uh, my wife is a social worker for an adoption agency in the Chicago area, and I learned from her that the phrase is really frowned upon in the adoption community as it can have a negative connotation of quitting on a child uh, when that is not the case, and they encourage people to say instead that the mother made an adoption plan for the baby. Uh, in fact, her agency had a campaign a few years ago called Give Up, Giving Up, hmm. Uh, I never thought twice about it until I learned about it from my wife, and I think it'd be great for your listeners to know. And that is from Frank. And Frank, I, uh, I'm very glad you let me know this, because this is something that we've even said in our house, and uh, we have tidied that up, because when I think about it, that is not the right thing to say. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you could see it reflecting on the child, especially when they get old enough to start thinking in those terms, but also on the the parents who um, who adopted off their child, you know, like like they yeah. did something shameful or something like that. Yeah, I absolutely, totally man. Way to go, yeah. Frank. So I think it's one of those situations where it's just sort of the way it's always been said. And mm-hmm. I love it when people point out like, no, there's a better way forward. Yeah. Like when that dude told us to stop using dark ages. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Same thing. Uh, yeah. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us like Frank or the Dark Ages dude, you can send us an email. Wrap it up, spank it on the bottom, unless it's a second cousin or closer, and send it off to stuffpodcast at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts my iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 3,000 years and Greek mythology has proved that it is not going anywhere. But it can be difficult to find entertaining and engaging retellings of these myths that aren't fictionalized. Lucky for you, I'm here. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is the Greek mythology and ancient history podcast of your dreams. I dive into the convoluted and confusing ancient sources so you don't have to. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths Baby on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there.